We're going to start with uh, the discussion with Nicodemus. If uh, you have a child and you have one of the children's bulletins, uh, you might want to add a couple of um, books of the Bible that I'll be mentioning this morning. Uh, Psalms, Romans, Titus. So, uh, you know, keep your kid a little more interested. It was a little late at night when I put that list together, so my brain was not functioning as uh, hopefully it is this morning. All right. I'm going to read uh, more than we're actually going to look at this morning. I'm going to read the entire encounter with Nicodemus. So uh, let us hear the word of our God. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we tremble to consider that the message of the gospel has been hidden from so many, even as we see Nicodemus struggle with it here in this text. Though read each week at the synagogue, the disciples and leaders of Israel missed the suffering of Messiah. You revealed this great mystery to Paul that he might proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. And so now help me to preach these same inexhaustible riches, that by the same Spirit you might enable us all to understand, to believe, and to apply those riches for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <coughs> I know some of you work in call centers or have worked in call centers. Uh, when I worked at Ligonier, I essentially worked in a call center. I would take these calls and I would, uh, you know, I'd, people would place orders, 
People would register for conferences. And sometimes at that point in Ligonier's history, we were allowed to answer theological questions. And that was usually what made my day, being able to answer theological questions. But occasionally there would be people who would call who would drive you absolutely insane. Because you wouldn't get them just once, you'd get them like five times. And so one of the people I got for a long time, it seems for a while anyway, I, call, I nicknamed him the born-again guy because he always wanted to talk about this passage. And he always wanted to talk about what it meant to be born again. And he had a rather unique view about what it means to be born again. And so he and I would kind of go round and round, and I'd try to explain within the context of the passage what was going on, and um, it became almost a joke in the, in the phone room because I would usually, somewhere in the middle of these conversations, have my head on my desk. <laughs> and I would start to go like, boom, boom, boom. Because it was like I was beating my head against a wall because what I was saying to this guy just wasn't connecting. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is just not connecting. We talked that, about that a little last week with uh, that quote from Cool Hand Luke that there's a failure to communicate. That's what's going to occur again here in this text. The, the, this idea of being born again is in many ways a very controversial one. It's controversial uh, theologically when you talk about the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. And if those words don't make sense to you, don't worry about it. We'll, we might get there later. We might not. It's not the end of the universe. <clears throat> but there's also sort of a cultural sort of controversy with those words that really began in the 1970s when Jimmy Carter, running for president, said he was born again. And now there was this new like, sort of born-again movement that became sort of out of the shadows of the Jesus movement in the 60s, 70s and became more popularized. And there are some people who gave that term born again a really bad name. <laughs> And there were a whole lot of people in Hollywood who capitalized on that. And, and so you have the caricatures of what it means to be a Christian, being a born-again Christian, which is a redundancy, if you ask me. But nonetheless, uh, they became sort of the joke that Hollywood was found easy to make. So this topic is controversial in many ways. But uh, the big idea that Jesus wants Nicodemus and us to get this morning is that salvation requires a radical Rebirth, And it's going to take a while to explain that. So, your first point is different than what it is now. <laughs> I'll warn you right now, I changed that. Entrance to God's kingdom has one radical qualification. That's really the point that Jesus is starting to make to Nicodemus. This begins a, a sort of a new section in which uh, Jesus has a series of discussions with individuals. It's beginning with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, remember last week we talked about his discussion with the, the Jewish leaders, and there was a number of them. Here it's one guy, and we're going to see you know, the woman at the well, and there's other people that we're going to see coming in a series. It starts with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, we know, because of how he is identified, that he was most likely a wealthy man. He was assuredly a very powerful man. Remember, he's a leader of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You don't get that way ordinarily. He's a very devout man. 
Okay? He's, he's very, if we would say the religious elite of Israel in that day, he would be one of those guys. He would be one of the people that you'd look to, to you know, be an elder in a church, that sort of thing. He was an elder in his church. He comes by night. Now, many <clears throat> have said that this, require, this um, implies that he was very fearful in approaching Jesus, and we're not really sure about that. It could be that he was seeking the night time so that there might be sort of undistracted, undivided, lengthy discourse with Jesus. Because he comes, he, he uses we a lot meaning that there's not a whole bunch of them, but he's sort of almost speaking as a representative of the Pharisees. And so the idea that he's afraid of what the Pharisees might think may not really hold up when we stop and think about this text. He probably wants some of Jesus' undivided attention, and so comes when people are not going to be knocking on the door and asking things of him. So he comes at night. He shows respect. He calls him rabbi or teacher. He seems, as I mentioned, to speak for others uh, who share this opinion that he happens to have about Jesus. He addresses the signs that Jesus has been doing. He believes that these signs point to the fact that God is with Jesus. That he believes that there's no way that, that these signs could be performed by someone who was not in a special, particular way, uh, under the, you know, connected to God or, or blessed by God. But when you see this idea of, of God was with him, I cannot help but think of like Joseph and Genesis. Read of how even though difficult experiences were, were occurring to him, God was with him and he prospered and he did well. And so you cannot, you know, that's probably the idea that's going on here. They see Jesus as a, a very powerful, soon to be controversial teacher in Israel. They don't see him necessarily as we've already seen thus far as the Son of Man, as the new temple. All of these things that we've begun to explore as Jesus reveals himself. But they, they believe something about these signs. And this should make us think of what we read last week at the end of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus did on his part... Uh, sorry, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Nicodemus and these others have seen these signs. They have some sort of belief about who Jesus is. But as we're going to see, Jesus is not going to entrust himself to Nicodemus at this point. He knows what's in Nicodemus. He's going to challenge what's in Nicodemus. Just as he knows what's in the woman in the well, he's going to challenge some of the woman in the well. So th that phrase there begins to help us understand the next couple of chapters of John's Gospel. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. Jesus does not appease this potential ally. I mean, think about that. If he could only get the Sanhedrin on his side, wouldn't that be a big plus for the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want to do it on their terms. It has to be on his terms. 
And so Jesus challenges Nicodemus. Religious, pious Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And he says, and he repeats it, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that really had to surprise Nicodemus. Because he probably thought that if the kingdom of heaven came, or kingdom of God came, that he would see it and he would be entering into it. His was most likely the mindset of of most religious people in Israel in that day. D.A. Carson notes that predominant religious thought in Jesus' day affirmed that all Jews would be admitted to that kingdom apart from those guilty of deliberate apostasy or extraordinary wickedness. What does that mean? That the average Jew believed that basically unless you did something that deserved being you deserve being thrown in jail for, or that you denied the faith that you would partake of the kingdom of God. They're all in. Unless you did something really, really bad, you're in. Because you're a son of Abraham. You're a son of Jacob, Israel. Let's stop and think for a moment before we get into who's in Talk about what they're in. Graham Goldsworthy, I think, has uh, talked about three things that uh, make up this idea of the kingdom of God that we need to keep in mind. And we talked about these at the men's Bible study on Thursday night. And I said, I'm gonna, I need to steal that. I forgot about that. The kingdom is about God's people in God's place under God's rule. Those are the three things. God's people, God's place, God's rule. And in light of that, it's normal for Nicodemus and the average Jew of his day to think that he belonged. Because as a Jew, he thinks he's God's people. We're in. He's in Jerusalem, which is, from his perspective, God's place. And as one who submits to the Torah... He is under God's rule. So it makes perfect sense from an earthly perspective that Nicodemus and other people of his day would have this idea that we're in. We're good. I'm God's person, in God's place, under God's rule. All three boxes for Nicodemus are checked. But the kingdom he's going to learn is not about ethnicity. It's not about living in the right country or the right part of the world. And it's not even about your piety. Isn't that sort of scandalous in some ways? There's not your piety that sort of qualifies you for the kingdom. Well, I'll clarify that later on, but... I remember when I was uh, an undergraduate at Boston University, a relatively new Christian, and here I am. I got some electives I got to take, so I'll take a New Testament elective. And at some point, someone asked the professor, um, because she was saying some things that I wouldn't necessarily recognize as Christianity, <laughs> what, what, what faith she held to. And she said, 
I was born in America. I'm a Christian. So it's not just Jews that have this, mi- this mindset, okay? There's other people could have this mindset. I'm a Christian. I was born in America. I'm in, the, I'm in the right people. I'm in the right place. And maybe she was under God's role. I don't know. But those who partake of it, as Jesus says, must be born again. There is one qualification for entering into the kingdom of heaven, and that is someone must be born again. Now, when we think of immigration these days, uh, if you get beyond all of the party politics anyway, some of you have immigrated to this country. You've gotten here different ways. I mean, we have, the, we have Steve Boyer who stuck across the northern border. <laughs> you know. But, you know, but he, but he had a... <laughs> oh, they don't know? <laughs> but, you know, he had a, a marketable skill that they liked. So they let him stay, and then they won the lottery, and they became citizens of this country, as well as citizens of Canada. We're still talking about that, you know? But... Uh, <laughs> It's the immigration lottery, I know. know, Three of my four kids won the adoption lottery. They came came in because they were adopted into our family. Um, Some people here, there's more than one, uh, you know, won sort of the marriage lottery. You know, there she is. She's not a citizen yet, but she married into this country. And Lucette's the same way. She's married. Came to this country. So, you know, there's different ways people get here legally, shall we say. One way to enter the the kingdom of God legally. And it's not based on your qualifications. It's not based on who you know, so to speak. It's, It's not based on any of the things that we normally would think of. Jesus says it's based on being born again. A radical sort of thing. A radical transformation that is necessary even for the best of us and still works even for the worst of us. We must be born again. Now, that's the tricky thing about English. When he says, you must be born again, our first inclination is to think of the you singular, but if you go back to the Greek, it's a you plural. So he's speaking, just as Nicodemus talked about we, 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 Jesus now says, you. And it applies not just to the people of Nicodemus's day, it applies for us as well. Nothing's changed in this regard. So this issue is not how religious or irreligious you happen to be, but whether or not you are born again. So let's get to the question of what does it mean to be born again? The Spirit must give life in order for us to enjoy the kingdom. You see, this declaration by Jesus startled Nicodemus, and it should startle uh, you know, people today. I'm sure if you asked all those who make fun of those born-again Christians, that the idea that you must be born again is offensive to them. It's startling to them. They want nothing to do with it. Lots of people want nothing to do with it. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. He doesn't, underst- he doesn't understand what's going on here. He, he kind of makes this physical. 
Can a man who's old be born again? I mean, that, you know, he, he kind of puts it in this framework of, of, in a sense, climbing back into the womb. Impossible after about a week, much less 40 years. So, you know, how he expresses this is sort of, you know, you, you've got to be crazy, Jesus. This is not possible, Jesus. He's thinking this in very earthly sorts, physical sorts of terms. He's not thinking about the work of the Spirit in this matter. Again, they're having failure to communicate. Jesus clarifies that to be born again means to be born of water and the Spirit. And I'll tell you what, this phrase continues to confuse theologians. All right? It's not just Nicodemus. It's not just the born-again guy on the other end of the phone at Ligonier. It confuses many theologians. There's four options for what is meant well, actually, there's three real options for what is meant by water. The first, coming from Ezekiel 36, which we read this morning, is the water of purification. That idea that they were uh, polluted by, their, by the idols that they had, and, and therefore they needed to be cleansed with water. The second main understanding is physical birth. And now some of you may think one way and go, Oh, yeah, like when a woman's water breaks. That's really not it. Uh, but in ancient literature, they often referred to, um, they used various euphemistic terms for semen, and one of them was water, rain, things like that. So some think this is uh, talking about natural birth, physical birth, that you, you needed to be born the first time and then a second time, physically, spiritually, you know, kind of paralleling the two resurrections that we see. There's the spiritual resurrection, which is regeneration, and then <clears throat> the second resurrection when Jesus returns. Third main view is Christian baptism. And so there are some churches that believe in this idea of baptismal regeneration, that it's the baptismal waters that give life to people, and we're not of that mindset. It would seem strange that Jesus would mention something that didn't exist yet. I mean, Christian baptism didn't exist yet. Uh, there was the baptism of John. But that's not the same thing as Christian baptism. And the disciples had not been sent out to baptize yet. So that doesn't really seem to be the best way of understanding water and spirit. Then we get to the fourth rather unique option, which was presented to me repeatedly by the born-again guy at the line on Ligonier. <laughs> when he was talking essentially about that middle, like you died, and then you're sort of in that, for him I guess was sort of almost a limbo-like state, and you were born a second time into the kingdom of heaven. And so it really wasn't concrete what exactly he meant by it, but you had to die first. So, Yeah. Let's just toss that one right out now, <laughs> okay? That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Part of how I put this together to understand this is that the parallel that we see in the very next passage, next verse, those who are born of the flesh are flesh. Those who are born of the Spirit are spirit. There's a contrast that exists in the next verse which leads me to believe that there's really, as we put this together, it's a, that, that water really kind of has, in some sense, it's tied to 
physical birth, but not, that's not it. It's really the purification. Hang on a second. Let me do a little theology. A little, hopefully, biblical thinking. John Calvin notes that we were born exiles and utterly alienated from the kingdom of God. He, of course, roots this in uh, places like Psalm 51, where, where David says that he was conceived in sin. So the idea that, that uh, we're sinners is not something that, you know, you're walking down the street one day and you steal something and now suddenly behold you're a sinner, but that from conception you were one and that is the reason why when you're walking down the street one day you see that bike you like and you take it even though it's not yours. Okay? You sin because you're a sinner. It's not the other way around in terms of logical priority. So, women who gave birth in Leviticus 12 were considered to be unclean, similar to having their menstrual cycle, and underwent purification rituals, which would include the bathing, the washing with water. That's part of where, where I'm getting my idea from. But it's not just that women were unclean when they had children, but there's also that idea, again, of conceived in sin, we're, we're not God's people by birth, we're actually rebels by birth. We're dead in sin and trespasses, as it says in Ephesians 2. And something radical has to take place in us. In Ephesians 2, it talks about being made alive with Christ. And that's a parallel to what we're seeing here. But we're not only made alive, we must be purified. And the covenant promise, the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, has both of those ideas in it. They were, they were polluted from their idolatry, and so it talks about, they, he was going to sprinkle water on them to remove the, the pollution of their idolatry, but he was also going to remove that heart of stone that was in them, that unresponsive heart toward God, and put a heart of flesh in there, one that responds to God. And not only that, he's going to put his spirit in that person. And so there was this promise that Nicodemus should have remembered from Ezekiel 36 about water and spirit. The new birth is about getting a new heart. It's about getting a new nature. Because your old nature is corrupt. And it can't just be fixed. It's like... My grand am can't be fixed, totaled, can't drive it anymore. That old nature is irreparable. It can't just can't just make it look nice with a little bit of paint and a little buffing. No matter how hard you try. You need a new heart. You need God's spirit. To give you life. We see this in Ephesians 5, for instance. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with 
the Word. And so that, that idea of the washing or cleansing, that initial bath that takes place, he's already done this and so he's now at work. And it's, again, it's tied to him having loved and given himself up for the church. It's tied to the objective work of Jesus Christ. But there is a subjective application of that work to individual sinners where they are washed. And notice the means here Washed by the word. We're going to see that again in just a second. In 1 Peter chapter 1, since you have been born again, not of imperishable, sorry, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so, Peter talks about how we have been born again. He understood it finally. I mean, when he heard this initially, he probably didn't get it either. Okay, But in his apostolic ministry, he understands it, and he says that this is a permanent sort of thing, and it takes place through the living and abiding Word of God. So the Word of God is, is a means by which the Spirit gives life to people like you and me. And it is only through the Spirit that a sinner begins to take part of God's people in God's place and under God's rule. What does this mean? First off, it means that regeneration logically precedes faith. Now we're in the Calvinist Arminian controversy, for those of you who don't know. Some, some people believe sincerely, but I think erroneously, that we believe and then are born again. I believe that based on this passage and others, I can't, even, I can't see the kingdom, I can't grasp the reality of the kingdom unless I'm born again. Because of the condition of my heart, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who seeks after God. Because of the condition of my heart of stone, unless I'm born again, I will never believe. And so in order to believe, I must be born again first. And so regeneration logically precedes faith. Now that's hard for some people because all of their adult lives or their life in church, maybe they've heard the other way. That you believe and then you're born again. Part of what this text is pointing to is how utterly dependent we are upon God to receive salvation. That there really is nothing we contribute to this. It is meant to humble us and make us grateful for this great work of salvation that we experience. It is God who gives us this new heart to believe. So in order to partake of the kingdom, we must be renewed by the Spirit. And again, the question goes, and how does that happen? Let's think about that for a few moments. Jesus, full of the Spirit, sends Him where He wants. You see, Jesus here, you know, we're, we're Americans, most of us. And so we tend to go for, okay, what am I supposed to do? And this is not about what you're supposed to do. That's why I talk, this is, this is mostly about gospel understanding today, not gospel practice. Because this is not about what you or I am supposed to do. 
It's not about something we submit to, like baptism. We talked about this when we were in Colossians, and this is another way in which the Scripture is in harmony with itself. But John the baptizer, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, testified that there was one who was coming who would baptize with the Spirit. And of course he means Jesus, the Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh and blood. So, not only is the new life spiritual, but the new life is in many ways mysterious. Notice the cryptic words of Jesus when he talks about this. It's cryptic because there's like double entendres in here. Because one of the realities is in, in Hebrew, the, the word for spirit is ruach, and in Greek, it's pneuma. And in both Hebrew and Greek, those two words can mean spirit, breath, and wind. In both languages. And so Jesus is doing a little play on words here. Because, you know, it's theoretical that you could translate this, the Spirit blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. Well, oddly enough, in Acts 2 it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. But, <clears throat> uh, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes to. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Or you could say, the, the breath blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. Now, the best translation, the best understanding is wind. Jesus is making a very physical thing that, obviously, Nicodemus needs to put this thing together. The wind. You feel the wind, but you don't know where it came from, and you have no idea where it's going to end up. Now, of course, you... you Feeling the wind going across your teeth, your, your cheek, uh, or through your hair, if I had hair, okay? I, I used to feel it when I had my goatee longer. It would kind of go like that. You kind of know it's coming from that direction, and you know it's sort of going in that direction, but you don't know where it started, and you don't know where it's going to end up. Okay, now, of course, we have meteorologists who can tell you this, but Jesus didn't have that. And, and you know, so let's... Let's not get too technical on this whole thing, okay? He's just he's make, using this to make a point. The wind to them and to most of us, unless we fly planes like some of the people in this room, is mysterious to us. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't necessarily know where it's going to end up. The spirit in regeneration is like that. It's mysterious. We don't know when it's going to come. How is this all going to end up? But just like the wind, we, we recognize things from its effects. As I mentioned, you know, feeling it on your cheek. Here in Tucson, Arizona, we have the, the dirt devils. You know where the wind is then? As it stirs up these dirt devils. Or a windmill. As you go to California, you can see those big wind farms. You know which way the wind is. Well, it could be one of two ways, I guess, which way the wind is going based on the windmill. Okay, so we, we know that there is wind based on its effects upon physical things. And so part of what Jesus is saying here is that you will know where the Spirit goes by its effects on people. When people are regenerate, there are going to be specific things that you will notice that give evidence that that person is regenerate. <coughs> Excuse me. One of these mysterious things is faith. 
If there's a person who clings and entrusts himself to the Jesus who reveals himself in the scriptures, then, you, okay, that is a sign that perhaps this person is regenerate. One of the main things about um, assurance of salvation, I've been you know, reading a book on antinomianism, so this is in my brain bumping around a lot right now. You know, one of the, one of the primary things about assurance of salvation is, do you believe on Christ and his promises as they're given in the gospel? Okay, that's the, that's the foundation for assurance. That's not all assurance is about, but, but that is a large part of what assurance is. Believing in Christ. And I'll get to the other part of that in a moment. But first I want to say that... <coughs> As we look at this text, as we look at John chapter 3, these first eight verses, it's interesting because they're about the work of the Spirit in salvation, the subjective work of the Spirit in applying salvation. The next section of uh, 9 through 15 deal with Christ's work for our salvation, the objective work of Jesus for our salvation. And then uh, 16 to the rest of the chapter talks about the Father's work, objective work, in our salvation. And so it's interesting that in a sense, he's going in reverse. Because we, we talk usually about Father, Son, and Spirit, not Spirit, Son, Father. And there's a, there's a, he's also getting the salvation backwards, so to speak. He's speaking about it in reverse, and this is usually how people understand it. First, they're regenerated. Then they, they believe in what Christ has done upon the cross for them. And then usually, hopefully for people, then they realize something about God's electing grace, the Father's work. Okay, so Jesus is kind of working backward when we think about the order of salvation. Okay. <clears throat> So Jesus, who is filled with the Spirit, sends the Spirit to apply the benefits of his saving work. And so the first evidence of that is faith in Jesus Christ. But let's, let's look here, 1 Peter chapter 1, again, verse 3. Again, stressing the sovereignty of God in this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so there's two things that I want us to see from right there in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. First thing I want you to, well, maybe it's three things. Let's keep this in mind, by his great mercy. But the thing I want you to, first one I want you to see is, he has caused us. This is not something that we are able to do. It is only something he is able to do. We are passive in this. And he is active in this by the testimony of Scripture. Okay? So he caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Part, so we're able to be born again because of what Jesus has done. Not just his death upon the cross, which we'll see in uh, John 3 next week, but also, as Peter mentions, through the resurrection, as we also see in Ephesians chapter 2. How is it that we're made alive with Christ? Because we're united to the resurrected Christ. And so our salvation rests not just a, upon a crucified Savior, but also a resurrected Savior. Okay? 
And so God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they sovereignly make us Jesus' people and bring us under Jesus' rule because we are united to Jesus, the person and the place and the rule by the Spirit. Is that too abstract for you? (laughs) I hope not. Again, we become his people because we're united to Jesus. He is, as we have mentioned before, the one person um, that is God's rule. He is the place. He's the new temple, so to speak, that we talked about last week. And so if you're connected to him, you're in the right place. It doesn't matter where you are on the globe, you're in the right place because you're in Jesus Christ. And he also is the means of God's rule as the vice regent over creation. Let's see how this plays out because it's not just trusting, it's also obeying. John, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 2. If you know that he, meaning Jesus, is righteous, then you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so one indication that someone has been born of him is that they begin to practice righteousness. Similar thought in chapter 3 of John's first letter. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so what John is saying is if, you have, if someone has been born of God, they will, there's a transformation that takes place in which they break the practice of sinning and, and move into a practice of obedience. That's not perfect. That's why we talk about progressive sanctification. There's an initial break with sin, and then we continue to, to grow, sinning less, obeying more. Okay? But if that doesn't exist, one has to wonder if someone has been born again. Because we've said something about what it means to be born again. And so if there's no faith in Jesus Christ, if there's no growth in obedience, then you have to, have I been born again? Why do I think I've been born again? And so our assurance of salvation, while it rests predominantly upon believing in Christ, there's also secondarily, is there obedience in my life? Is, is sin being put to death because of the cross? Am I, am I walking more and more with Christ as He deals with the sin in my life? So those, those are important questions that require an answer. Because your, your salvation hinges upon whether or not you've been born again. Ooh, my, got to end. So the kingdom of God is not like any other nation on earth. Well, it's not like any nation on earth. It is made up of a people who are united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit and who live under His rule. It's not about birthrights. It's not about where you live. It's not about how good you are. 
all of us were sinners from conception and unqualified. The only way to enjoy the kingdom is for the Spirit to remove your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh to be born again. Like the first birth, that one's not up to you either. There's none of us who said, is it my turn to be born yet? It is up to God to bestow this great privilege upon people. But we know we have it if we trust in Christ as He is revealed in the Scriptures and we're growing in our obedience under His rule. So have you been born again? Or do you need this second birth from above? Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would indeed give assurance where assurance is warranted. That You would comfort the people who are truly Your people because they are united to Jesus. Because they have been born again. And if there are some who aren't but thought they were, that You would not only remove the illusion and the deception that we can always do to ourselves, but that You would Give them life. That even now they would cry out for a new heart, for a new nature, to be united to Jesus forever. Father, be at work in, in, in all of us who are your people, who are in your place and struggling to live under your rule. Strive by Your Spirit. Lead us into greater obedience. Move by Your Spirit to reveal the pockets of rebellion remaining in our hearts and our minds that we might turn from them and confess them to You, to you and be purified from all unrighteousness. We think of this particularly in light of this season in the, in the year of the church. One in which sin is put to death. So be doing that amongst us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.